From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is Resound. Resound. Darling, the radio. Oh, oh, Lord. No, this time it's finished. Bang it again. It's a miracle it lasted this long. I'm Gwen Maxi. Resound is Third Coast's weekly remix of the best documentaries, archival tidbits, forgotten tape, and strange sound bites from around the globe. We pull audio out of the ether and present it to you. All you need to play is a fast car, a devil-may-care attitude, and a heavy foot on the gas pedal. It seems ironic that magicians train for years to pull things out of thin air. When you think about it, all they really need to do is turn on the radio. One button or knob, and voices come from nowhere, music floats through the room, the entire world comes out of a little box. A radio tuner has two dials, one for volume and one for frequency. You don't have to be literate, you don't have to have a subscription to PC User Magazine to be able to find out what happens when your web stream crashes. And so radio is going to remain a very important medium until people figure out how to make a computer with two buttons on it. Everyone talks about sound waves and antennas and signals and transmitters, but all I know, and it is all I know, is that for the price of a battery and a cheap little box, your head can be filled, your heart can be broken, and your cup can surely runneth over. We figured it was time to give it its due, and where better to do that than on the radio. If you fear that your radio is receiving two programs simultaneously here, then don't touch the dial. Believe me, this is all one program. Before there were iPods, before there were Walkmans, before there were transistors, stereos, or even radio stations, there was Conrad's Garage. Thomas Edison said, to invent, you need a good imagination and a pile of junk. Frank Conrad, a Westinghouse engineer, had both. And in 1919, he unknowingly started a revolutionary industry. Producer Joe Richmond tells this unusual story. The sounds that came out of Frank Conrad's garage in 1919 and 1920 are gone. There were no recordings made, and everyone who participated in those weekly broadcasts has died. In fact, there may be only one person still alive who actually heard what was going on in that garage, a man named Harry Mills. This is K4HU. Hello, Charlie. W1HVA, here's K4HU. How are you this evening? I'm pretty good. I'm a little sleepy. Harry Mills is 94 years old. He was an engineer for RCA most of his life, but for the last eight decades, he's been going on the ham radio just about every day. Mills first discovered radio in 1919. He was 12 years old, and his parents bought him a copy of the Boy Scout Handbook. In the book... After a lot of the camping and the setting up a tent in the rain and helping the old lady cross the street and so on. And the back was a chapter on how to build a wireless station. I had never heard of such a thing. So I built one. I'll show you how it works. It was built out of photograph plates and tin foil, the condenser, and this is weather stripping. And uh, this is a Ford coil, Ford ignition coil, which would hook onto your antenna and you're on the air. 
This is what radio sounded like when Mills first started. The dots and dashes of Morse code. That's the letter V, which you use for test purposes. If he hears me, he'd come back and we'd hold a conversation. As simple as that. Almost every night, Harry Mills would lie in his bed and listen to the amateur radio operator's signal back and forth. Then one night, he heard something different. I remember it was 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and all at once, this voice appears. And I remember letting out a yelp or a shout of some sort, and my dad, who had, who had just gotten out of the bath, come in wrapped in a towel to be sure I was all right. Something hadn't happened to me, and I said, Dad, look, I'm hearing this fella talking. <laughs> and uh, we shared the headphones. We only had one pair of headphones. And he allowed it. I was right. Harry Mills had stumbled onto the experimental transmissions coming from Frank Conrad's garage, 35 miles away. He was talking, and he says, now I'm going to play a phonograph record. And he did. It was astounding. I, I didn't know he could do that. To begin with, I hadn't heard voice before, and as I had that the music, it opens up a whole new world. Frank Conrad was not the first person to talk and play music on the radio. Inventors like Reginald Fessenden, Lee DeForest, and Marconi had been doing such experiments as early as 1906. But back then, radio was seen as a method of one-to-one communication, like the telegraph. Few envisioned radio as a way to reach many people at the same time, to broadcast. Frank Conrad was among the first to use the word broadcasting. It was originally an agricultural term used to describe the distribution of seeds over a large area. In his garage, Conrad helped to change the concept of radio, and he did it largely by accident. Testing, testing. Testing one, two, three, test one, two, three. This is Frank Conrad from the garage. This is what it would have sounded like anyway. It's probably fair to say that nobody cares more about Frank Conrad's garage than a man named Rick Harris. Harris is an amateur historian who has dedicated his life to preserving and researching the history of that garage. He's collected replicas of the equipment Conrad used, a microphone made out of the top of a candlestick telephone, mounted in a small box stuffed with cotton, and a hand-cranked Victrola. You turn the crank. Rick Harris says the story of Frank Conrad's garage really begins with that Victrola. Conrad was an engineer for Westinghouse, so he had access to vacuum tubes which allowed him to transmit his voice over the air. But at the time, Conrad wasn't thinking about broadcasting. He was simply trying to test and improve his transmitting equipment. The problem was his voice, after talking endless hours into the microphone, would wear out. So he got the idea one day to put on a record that would give him two or three minutes to adjust his equipment and would save his voice. This one is an ancient one, so I don't know what it's going to sound like, though. And as soon as he started playing the music, he began getting requests for more music, and he would get phone calls and letters asking him to play a certain song at a certain time so someone listening with their crystal set could convince a relative that you could actually play music over the air. He found very quickly that there was an unseen audience out there. People would call me up at night and ask me to transmit. They once said they had some friends who wanted to listen to something coming out of the air. This is Frank Conrad. I 
recorded in the late 1930s, not long before he died. And they finally got to take care of that. I sort of arranged to send the program twice a week, every Wednesday and Saturday night. First at that time, I actually had no idea what it was going to end up into. Over time, Conrad's garage started to sound more like a radio station. Along with phonograph records, Conrad would transmit piano solos by family members and baseball scores. And then, when he started to run out of records to play, Conrad went to the Hamilton Music Store and asked if he could borrow some for his broadcasts. The owner said yes, as long as Conrad agreed to announce the name of the store on the air. Slowly, Conrad was building the one thing the radio industry hadn't yet thought much about, an audience. But the real turning point came on September 29, 1920, when the Joseph Horn department store placed this ad in the Pittsburgh Sun. Air concert picked up by radio here. The music was from a Victrola in the home of Frank Conrad. Mr. Conrad is a wireless enthusiast and puts on the wireless concerts periodically for the entertainment of many people in this district who have wireless sets. Amateur wireless sets are on sale here, $10 and up. The ad really caught the attention of Conrad's boss at Westinghouse, a man by the name of Harry Davis, who, uh, the story goes, called Conrad in the next day and said, essentially, I would like to put you out of business because I would like Westinghouse to set up its own station and uh, Davis asked Conrad could that be done and Conrad said of course. So over the next month Conrad and his team began constructing a wooden shack on the roof of the Westinghouse plant. They built a 100 watt transmitter and at 6 p.m. on the night of November 2nd 1920 the newly licensed station KDKA went on the air. This is KDKA of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We shall now broadcast the election returns. The station launched by broadcasting the returns of the Harding-Cox presidential election. There were no recordings of that broadcast, but in the late 1930s, the original announcer, Leah Rosenberg, made this recreation. We'd appreciate it if anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us, as we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching and how it is being received. Well, nobody had ever heard of such a thing before. You had to wait till the next day to find out who won the election. Harry Mills, who was 13 by this time, remembers going down to the local newspaper where they had set up a receiving station. Somebody would sit at the receiver and a crowd gathered outside or a number of people and they would watch these returns being updated as the numbers came in bigger. The next day in the newspaper, of course, the talk was, gee, for the first time, ever, people were able to get the reports before the newspaper was printed. I think it's very difficult for us today to imagine really quite what a magical moment this was. Susan Douglas is a professor at the University of Michigan and the author of Inventing American Broadcasting. She says the KDKA election broadcast was a watershed event. And because there were no connecting wires, because uh, this, uh, there was this concept of the ether, there was kind of a cosmic connection for people. It was a, a quasi sort of spiritual event that these voices were coming out of the air into your home. And two weeks after that first transmission, Westinghouse introduced the first radio for the general public, the Areola Junior, which sold for $25. The broadcasting boom had begun, and over the next few years, radio would move out of the garage and into the living room. Sounds wonderful. It's KDKA Pittsburgh. Wherever you go, 
Today, KDKA is considered the oldest radio station in the country. History has not been as kind to Frank Conrad's garage. This fall, bulldozers began to clear the site. It will soon be a Wendy's. The bulldozers destroyed Conrad's house, but Rick Harris and a group of supporters called the Conrad Project managed to save the garage, piece by piece. The woodwork, all of the doors, the windows, and some 25,000 or so bricks, the ones that uh, survived anyway. I don't know, it's, it's just the more I learn about Frank Conrad and what he did and the fact that he's virtually unknown outside of Pittsburgh, it, it just something, it feels that he's been overlooked for what he did. Someday, Harris hopes to reconstruct Conrad's garage and turn it into a museum. Frank Conrad may have helped to launch the modern broadcasting industry, but that wasn't really his vision. Conrad was just a talented engineer tinkering late at night in his garage, trying to connect to people through the air. And that pretty well describes what 94-year-old Harry Mills is still doing every night at 10 o'clock. W1UEA, here's K4HU. Thank you, guy. Yes, I'm reading you very well. After all this time, Harry Mills says he still feels the same way he felt when he first heard Frank Conrad's voice coming out of the radio. To me, it's, it's difficult to describe the fascination of it. I know I use it all the time. How does it happen? Can't see the fella. There's no wires going from here to there, but you can talk to him. It was a, a phenomenon that interested me from the beginning. I, I presume it's safe to say that that has, I've never gotten over it. So with that, I'm going to say good night. Thanks for the uh, use of your loudspeaker. So good night, Bob, and good night, Guy. W1TRFK4HU. Okay, very good. Good night, Harry. Good night, Guy. Oh, yeah, one, two, three, four. Good night, all. Conrad's Garage by producer Joe Richman for Lost and Found Sound. Joe is the founder and producer of Radio Diaries, an organization that trains diarists to be radio reporters so they can document their lives. Right now, he's in South Africa working with a young woman who's keeping an audio diary about living with AIDS. If anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us, as we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching and how it is being received. She kept the radio on all day, and nothing untoward came from the speaker. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. That's with you every night Through the long commuter fight And in the morning with your toast and mama lady-o Who listens to radio No matter if it's summer, winter, spring or fall Who listens to radio Only 150 million 150 million 
This is ReSound. That was Sarah Vaughn. I'm Gwen Maxi. There are so many things going through the airwaves at any given time. Cell phones, television, radio, satellite signals. Who knows what's passing through you every time you step outside your door? But a hundred years ago, the air was strangely empty. Then, on December 12, 1901, as the legend goes, on a hill in Newfoundland, Marconi received the first transatlantic wireless signal, pretty much enabling every single communication device that has been with us ever since. Canadian producer Chris Brooks lives at the base of that same hill and decided to find out exactly what happened there a century ago. Are we on the air? Well, you see, the first actual communication was when one person spoke to another person and they understood what they were saying. And then it goes on for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Call. Response. Transmit. Hello? Can you hear? Hello? Can you hear me? Can Can you you hear hear me? I can hear you. Receive. What happens if we whisper? Can you hear me now? S. Why did they choose that? Well, they used the letter S because if they used anything with dashes in, they thought that the dots and dashes would run into each other, and therefore the easiest letter to distinguish was S, which is, in Morse code, three dots. The letter S... S for silence. Silence. S for sound. Sound. But what was it like then? What was it like then? Can you hear me? Can you hear anything? Call. Response. We get into uh, modern times with Christianity, for instance, bells. People were summoned to church by bells. That was a message being sent. And the bells rang over the hills and the dales, and people heard them and answered the call. In fact, uh, John Betjeman, I think, called his biography Summoned by Bells. (laughs) Before the car, the plane, the radio, the telephone, the telegraph, what was the world like? Was it larger? Did the world feel, did it feel like a larger place to live in? I think the world felt enormous. Turn of the century, and I'm talking about 1800, not 1900. um, Large parts of Africa completely unknown. Mm. The Far East, very mysterious. Um, A a message to any foreign country took weeks, or maybe it didn't get through at all. 
um, ships, once they had, had left port and sailed out into the blue, you had no idea where they were or how they had fared until they arrived at their distant destination. And if, if that was miles away, somewhere like uh, uh, the Far East, then uh, you had to wait uh, months and months before you knew whether your voyage had been successful or not, if you were a shipping merchant. Hmm. Larger. Was there more space between things? Between continents? Between words? Between people? Well, I think people, when they, for instance, a lot of Newfoundlanders left and went to the United States, Boston area and so on, including some of my mother's uh, and father's brothers and sisters. And once they left, they were gone. It wasn't a matter of that we'll be home next year to fly home and see you or anything. They left and they never saw them again. Eventually, the lines disappeared between the families as people died out and their children didn't keep up with the contacts. My grandfather's sister went off to the States in uh, 1898 and we never heard of them afterwards. Was there more homesickness in the world? More loneliness? Larger. What was in all the space? Imagination? Dreams. If I could go back there, mm. was the air empty? No, the, the, the ether was completely empty before Marconi started. The ether. And what would I have heard if I'd turned on, or if I, if I could have had a radio and turned it on before he started? You would have heard, if you, if you get a radio now and you, and you turn it to a, a, a blank section of the dial where nothing is transmitting, you, you would hear that, that exactly the same. Just static. Just static, yes. Small voice, the still small voice of the air. Can you hear? Can you hear anything? The place I grew up in, St. John's, the place he came to, later. It was a wooden city. What did it sound like? A city of wood, really. Not like him. He grew up in a city of stone. What did it sound like? This is what the city of Bologna sounds like today. In fact, it's the way it sounds on the Piazza Maggiore, right in the center of Bologna. And near the corner, on 14th of November Street, outside number 7, there's a stone plaque over the portico that reads, in Italian, Here was born Guglielmo Marconi, who, with electric waves, first communicated without cables or wires from one hemisphere to the other, for the benefit of humanity. But what was it like then? What did it sound like then? 
in 1874. <laughs> Introducing our central character. The story they tell in the family. Apparently, the family servants were all gathered around Annie Jameson Marconi to have a good gawk at her newborn. And one of the less tactful of them exclaimed, What big ears he has! <laughs> Annie replied in a huff, Then he will be able to hear the still, small voice of the air. And did he hear it? He thought he heard it. Now, why do you say that? Well, the, from a radio scientist's point of view, he couldn't possibly have heard it, no. There are lots of stories. Is this one true? So we are in his uh, laboratory. This is the f most famous window of uh, the villa. We are opening it. And... Uh, and so, this was, as I said, Guglielmo Marconi's first uh, laboratory. The attic of the Villa Griffoni, an estate on the outskirts of Bologna where his family spent their summers in the 1890s. Today, it's the private museum of the Marconi Foundation, and historian Barbara Vallotti is the curator. Marconi spent days and nights uh, closed, uh, he locked up here, and probably Giuseppe, his father, was not very happy uh, with this strange son uh, that spent so many hours, so much time here. He must have had other friends his age, did he? What did they think Not that him? many, not that many. Uh, he didn't have so many friends. He really didn't have close friends and didn't do uh, what many uh, people of his age uh, were doing. He was a bit you know, special and maybe a bit crazy, I don't know, but... Uh, if it had been a hundred years later, he would have been a computer nerd hunched over a, a computer here and only coming out for meals. It's probably, this is probably true, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except back then, computers didn't exist. He was a spark nerd. In 1894, he read about the experiments of the German scientist Heinrich Hertz. Hertz had built a spark gap transmitter, basically a machine to generate an electric spark between two brass electrodes, and he demonstrated that this could radiate electromagnetic waves. In the Marconi attic, the shy teenager was fascinated, and he started tinkering with his own home-built spark transmitter. Hertz's experiment in Germany was a laboratory curiosity. In Bologna, how is it that Marconi was able to hear something else in that spark? In the air, waves. Just up the street from Marconi's parents' place on 14th November Street, the Basilica di San Paolo Maggiore. Was he here? What did it sound like to him? Are we on the air now?
call. Response. Transmit. Receive. Three blocks away, a stone corner off the Piazza Maggiore. It has a domed roof, and the acoustics are unusual. If you hang around, pretty soon you'll notice that lots of passers-by tend to stop. Well, this couple here is typical. They walk to opposite corners of the little square and turn their backs on each other. He speaks into his corner. She listens in hers. The acoustics bounce his voice off the roof right into the opposite corner. What, what, what are you doing? Yeah, if you talk slowly here from this side and the other side, just just slowly, you can hear very well on the other side. Can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a like a radio because there is a sort of a echo that is, is working very well and uh, you, can, you can talk uh, just, just, uh, just suffer. If you want to try. Sure. Can you hear me? We'll see you here. What happens if we whisper? Can you hear me now? The still small voice. I conceived the idea that by means of the invention of efficient telegraphic transmitters and receivers, it would be possible to transmit and receive messages over great distances without the necessity of using connecting wires. A short emission of the transmitted waves would signify the dot of the Morse alphabet. A long emission, a dash. And thus words might be spelled out in the sparks of the distant receiver. The idea was so real for me that I did not realize that to others the theory might appear quite fantastic. S for signal. S for shot. The birth of radio communications is often associated to a, a, a gunshot. The gun was on the other side of a hill on his parents' estate. The kid in the attic had developed an antenna and ground system to send his spark signals further and further. At the time, scientists had no idea whether radio waves could pass through obstacles or not. Marconi was about to find out. He'd sent his brother Alfonso over the hill with a receiver and a shotgun. He stayed in the attic to operate his transmitter. If Alfonso received the signal, he was to fire the gun. It was 1895. Marconi was 21. After some minutes, I started to send, manipulating the Morse key. In the distance, a shot echoed down the valley. I saw then, for the first time, a great new way open before me. Not yet a triumph, triumph was far distant, but I understood in that moment that I was on the right road. My invention was born. This 
this was certainly a very important moment, and uh, this happened here in 1895, probably during the summer at Villa Griffone. At that point, Marconi, uh, there was probably family decisions to be made, and uh, they finally decided to move to London. I would say mainly for two reasons. That is, in England, Marconi was aware that he could count on the help of some of his relatives in London. And second, they certainly uh, uh, knew that England had the most powerful commercial fleet of the time, uh, so England could appreciate the potentials of Marconi's invention, uh, that is, the use of wireless telegraphy for ships. So uh, Guglielmo and his mother, Annie Jameson, moved to London at the very beginning of 1896. There's the two pictures of him, or one picture of him in 1896 when he arrived in England with his equipment. So here's this, here's this, this young, very young man. 22. Mm-hmm. Getting off a train with a box under his arm. I mean, what, what would he look like to a sophisticated British society and to the British scientific establishment? Well, I imagine he would, he would look a typical continental. No one could possibly, I think, have foreseen that there, at that time that this boy was going to change the world forever, mm. which, of course, he did. Gordon Bussey is the historical consultant for Marconi Company in England. The first thing he did, with the help of his cousin, Henry Jameson Davis, who was a very competent man, got busy in filing for his patent of June 1896, which was to form the first patent in the world for wireless telegraphy. S for shrewd. S. His first public demonstration, December 1896. Can you hear? This is a replica. It's a replica of the receiver that Marconi used for the first public demonstration at Turnby Hall in London. Marconi walked around with this black box with the bell on top and you had all the people assembled in the sort of theatre of Tomby Hall and you had a stage and on the stage was Sir William Priest, the chief engineer of the post office and he had a similar black box and coming from it were two wires which were attached to a Morse key. Every time he touched the, the Morse key, the coherer in Marconi's receiver... In his black box. In his black box would initiate the bell on his receiver to ring. So he was, he was in fact, holding this large, fairly heavy black box and walking around the audience, through the audience, like this. He was going one end at the other and then turning round and going down, down, down. And, and you, every time Sir William Priest, on the stage, pressed the Morse key, the bell would ring. And, of course... The, 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 the public found this absolutely fascinating. They, they found it unbelievable. How did this, how was this possible that a bell could ring without any physical linkage? And, of course, it got tremendous coverage in the newspapers the, you know, the following day. 1897. On the piano rolls, the Harlem Rag. In the newspaper La Tribuna, an interview with Guillermo Marconi. What is the nature and aim of your discovery, and how did it come about? My discovery does not contain any new principle. 
but the extension of principles already known. It took shape in my mind little by little. Would you like to say something about the consequences and practical application of your discovery? It is thought that my invention is applicable above all in wartime. Even more important will be its applications at sea, in rain and fog, when lighthouses are not visible. And is this system going to be used for everyday telegraph communications at long distances? In theory, there are no obstacles, but it will be necessary to overcome many practical difficulties. People were still very sceptical about wireless. He knew in his heart that if he was to succeed, he would have to do something startling. He would have to communicate by wireless across the Atlantic. Well, he put this proposition to the board of his company, and of course I think they viewed this with some terror. You know, he proposed to build this huge station somewhere in England and another one probably in America, and that the cost was going to be probably in the region of £50,000. He was talking about a station 100 times more powerful than anything had ever been done before. And there was a lot of scientists saying it's a physical impossibility, it cannot be done. You cannot transmit across the Atlantic nobody believed at the time that wireless waves would follow the curvature of the Earth. Anyway, they reluctantly agreed, and they chose a site at Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and they finally chose a site in Cornwall, near Mullion, at Poldew. Poldew, Cornwall, 1901. Building the transmission towers. Can you hear? I'm Eddie Matthews, 43 years a lighthouse keeper. So when Marconi was here, that is that is the foghorn he would have heard? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, in Marconi's time, oh, yes. Mm. That's a compressed air, not like the uh, new things today. So if you'd been around in 1901 and seen Marconi putting up 200-foot-high towers, what would you have said to him? Well, I would have thought he was mad, personally, because uh, we get terrific gales here. 60 to 80 mile an hour gales are regular for this. That'd be gone the first storm. Are we on the air? On the 17th of September 1901, the aerial at Poldew was virtually destroyed by a storm. And of course the board were horrified when they learnt this. And just thrown their money away? Yes, but he had a temporary aerial erected and he knew then he did not have enough power to go to Cape Cod. So he decided to go for the nearest landfall, which was Newfoundland. Another storm blows down his antennas in Cape Cod. It means the company now has a small fortune riding on the Newfoundland gamble. S for desperate. S for signal. St. John's Evening Telegram, December 6th, 1901. The SS Sardinian, nine days from Liverpool, arrived this morning with 450 tons of general cargo to Shea and Company. Her saloon passengers are Mrs. C. Steer, Mrs. R. J. Green, and two children, Miss Leddingham, Messrs. Marconi, Kemp, and Paget. S for St. John's. It was a wooden city. A city of wood, really. What did it sound like? But what was it like then? Well, according to my father, from a small boy, when we'd go to Signal Hill, 
dad would always reflect on the memory that his father had when he met Marconi. There are lots of stories. Is this one true? But anyhow, um, Marconi could play the piano. And my grandfather could sing quite well, you see. And he was a known baritone, and he sang in many concerts in St. John's and around Newfoundland. And uh, Marconi just said, oh, and I play the piano, and he introduced himself. And uh, then they talked about one thing and another, and he said, well, we should do a concert. And because Marconi was explaining how he needed some funds to try to get uh, the kite up in the air and try to get this thing on the go. And he said, well, sure, I'd be happy to. So apparently they arranged a concert in St. John's. This is 1901 now, this is a long time ago. And they raised $40. And Marconi played the piano and Grandfather sang. So the story goes. There are lots of stories. That's one old one anyway. That's Face to Face by Herbert Johnson. Is this one true? We selected as a site for our receiving station Signal Hill, a headland at the entrance to St. John's Harbor. It was a desolate scene, not a shrub or a tree, only a deserted military hospital in one room of which Mr. Marconi set up his apparatus. We had brought two 15-foot balloons and six kites for the purpose of elevating the aerial. But the weather was terrible, and for a couple of days, we battled with the elements. One of the balloons being carried away by the gale, which snapped the heavy mooring rope like a piece of cotton. So Mr. Marconi suggested that for his crucial test on the third day, we should use kites. And on that morning, we managed to fly a kite up to 400 feet. The icy rain slashed my face as I watched anxiously. It is now my great privilege to introduce my distinguished chief, His Excellency, the Marchese Marconi. It was shortly after midday on December the 12th, 1901, that I placed a single earphone to my ear and started listening. The experiment had involved risking at least 50,000 pounds to achieve a result which had been declared to be impossible by some of the principal mathematicians of the time. The chief question was whether wireless waves would be stopped by the curvature of the Earth. The first and final answer to that question came at 12.30 when I heard. Listen to this, Kemp. Take the headphone. Can you hear anything? Can you hear? Yes, there it is. The letter S. Distinctly, Mr. Marconi. So the story goes. Now, three things happen at once. The most oh, wonderful scientific development. No. The first? S. For success. Wireless makes world headlines. The New York Times. Guillermo Marconi announced tonight the most wonderful scientific development in modern times. The fall in the securities the of cable success. companies. Second. S for skeptics. Skepticism. Marconi and his assistant swore they heard the signal. 
but some scientists were dubious. Initially, in 1901, the skeptics included people like Thomas Edison. A hundred years later, they include the senior radio scientist at Ottawa's Communications Research Center, Dr. John Belrose. From a radio scientist's point of view, he couldn't possibly have heard it, no. Ground wave propagation would not go across the Atlantic, so he'd have to be receiving sort of like a short wave signal or a signal reflected from the ionosphere. But he wasn't using a short wave signal. He was using a signal at the lower end of the medium frequency broadcast band, about 500 kilohertz. But after all, his company had a tremendous investment in this experiment. He had to simply had to hear something. And if you listen hard enough, you can believe that you heard something. So put yourself in his position, listening very intently. He would occasionally hear three clicks, and that's what he was listening for. But you but, don't believe uh, he heard the letter S in, on, in St. John's that day? I think he heard just naturally occurring atmospherics. He turned. He was lucky then, wasn't he? Because he turned out ultimately to be right, in a way. Because uh, other, otherwise I wouldn't be hearing you on the radio now, so it must exist. That's right, yes. But uh, whether he heard the, the three clicks or not, I, I think is really un, unimportant from uh, today's standpoint. It certainly stimulated a tremendous amount of scientific discussion and uh, a race to achieve a reliable transatlantic communication. So he did accomplish a, something by his experiments. Marconi is really the father of long-distance communications. And the third thing that happens is the world shrinks to a very small place indeed. Can you hear Whispers in the Air, produced by Chris Brooks for Soundprint. Chris Brooks was also a Third Coast Award winner in 2005 for his piece, A Map of the Sea. If you want to listen to any of the award winners, read more about the producers, or listen to one of hundreds of other great documentaries, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. And while you're there turning the sound on, feel free to sound off. Get it off your chest. Tell us how you feel about ReSound. The good, the bad, the ugly. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Donna Summer on the radio, 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 Donna Summer on the refrigerator, Donna Summer on the refrigerator, Donna Summer on the radio, 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 Donna why do you have to turn it on? Why do you have to listen to that stuff? It makes you so miserable. No, 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 we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching and how it is being received. So tell me your iPod radio story. I have an iPod 
in one of those FM transmitter devices that transmits the music from the iPod to your car stereo or your portable stereo. And it has a range of about three meters. And it really works well when you're in a city that has one or two open channels. So one day, I just left the radio on, tuned to the station for the iPod, but without the iPod with me. And I started to hear weird snippets of music and voices and other kind of weird, weird pieces of audio. And I realized that as I would get closer to people's cars, the signal strength would get clearer. And I discovered that they had the same FM transmitter iPods in their cars, and that's what I was picking up on. And this became a, a, a lot more fun than listening to my own iPod, because I'm eavesdropping inside other people's private audio space. People are singing along to music, they're listening to audiobooks, they're learning languages, and I can drift in and out of the things that they're listening to. You're listening to ReSound. The last story we have for you today is a little gem produced by Jeff Siskind. It's called Snooze. You'll see why in a second. And it shows what happens when something as magical as radio enters into the everyday and won't leave you alone. I was trying to buy some crackers from a giant store that sold only crackers. It looked like a cracker superstore. Neon lights, shelves going up 20 or 30 feet, stocked with every sort of cracker imaginable. I was trying to buy some crackers. Welcome to Cracker World, where everything is just crackers all the time. Can I help you? I'm looking for a cracker. Something good with a whole variety of cheeses. A real versatile cruncher. Something with a little je ne sais quoi. I do know what you mean, sir. I really do. I am a professional cracker monger. After all, training. I took 30 years of training. Training very, very difficult and rigorous. Cracker school. I'm a graduate. Good. Perhaps you'd like to try some octopus jam with your cracker selection, sir. No, no, I don't think I would, thank you. No, thank you. So again, avoid the parkway. Both directions mm. very, very slow. We have trouble mm. now on Highway What, what time is it? Collectors, North and Southbound lanes of Gorway. Uh, we've can, had a delay. Uh, can you press the snooze? Okay. The store suddenly turns into a car, a small, compact something or other. I, I don't really know anything about cars, uh, other than it's a green one. Buckle up for safety, sir. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Hope you're enjoying your complimentary ding-dongs and you They're not just good. They're good for you. Oh, uh, uh, thanks. Um, nice driving, by the way. Um, y- if you don't mind me asking, and I sincerely hope that you don't mind me asking, uh, where exactly, sir, are we... Um, uh, going. We're going to the races, sir. Dog races. Poodle racing. Tons of fun. Would you like another ding-dong? 
Me? No. No, no. De definitely no. No, I'm, I'm good. Thank thanks, though. Just then I noticed the pocket of his jacket began to move. Almost like inside of it, there is something alive. What the? Oh, man, take no notice. That's just my squirrel. His name is Mr. Gorway. Say hello to the next man, Mr. Gorway. Hello, Dingleberg. The pleasure's all yours. Your squirrel's wearing a top hat. Of course I am, Chunkwad. Look, if we don't step on it, we're going to be late. Sorry, it's just his traffic. Well, who exactly is the hairy newsbag who decided to take the parkway in the first place? Oh, I forgot it was that hot dog. Did you just call me a hot dog? Suddenly, the car begins to lift off the ground. And the squirrel, he hops up on the dashboard and begins to do a little dance. Yeehaw! Uh, I'd love to get off at the next available place to, to, to stop. That is, if it's not too much of a problem. And with Luke the News, here's Joe. School officials will find out next week how much money they can expect from the province for repairs and renovations. Mm, do we have to get up now? Some officials believe it's a matter of catch-up and the money provided um, may not be enough. And tickets to sporting no. Okay, can you press the snooze again? Sure. We pull into what I think is a dog racetrack, only it doesn't look like any dog racetrack I've ever seen before. Instead, it's a, a giant building that looks sort of like a school, only it's covered head to toe in a thick layer of ketchup. Last up. Ketchup school, yum yum, who doesn't love ketchup? Hope you brought your appetite with you. Mind your head on the way out the door. Where? We're stopping? Well, Fatso, are you going to get out of the car, or are you just going to sit there all day on your bulbous rump and wait for a handwritten invitation to be delivered to you via the supple hands of the Postmaster General himself? Or are you going to boogie? <laughs> Me? Uh, no. No, I was, I was just thinking. That's, um, that's a lot of ketchup. Uh, are we still going to the dog races? Yes, 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 the dog races are in the ketchup school. Last one out's a dirty Sally. Oh, well, I, I wouldn't want to be a dirty Sally. No, sir, you would not. What is that supposed to mean? Listen here, Bobby Socks. What you need to do is stop sweating the wee little details. With just four bucks in your pocket and a handsome squirrel like myself on your arm, the world is your armadillo on stick. Shall we? I guess. What is this place? You duck, son. It's Ketchup School, the Institute of Tomato Studies, Condiment School of Higher Learning. Getting hungry just thinking about it, no? Home of the dog races. Hurry up, my humanoid friend. We're going to miss the first race. We walk through the front door and into a huge room that looks kind of like a Walmart. Only, in the center of it, there's quite a large dog racing track. And there seems to be a race in progress with about seven or eight poodles walking very leisurely towards the finish line. And over the loudspeaker, I can hear a very familiar voice. We're having trouble now on track seven in the direction of the finish line. Looks like a stalled poodle. Our groomers are now at the scene. Uh, and heavy on the 401 as you head out through to the Ajax area. Trouble much earlier, and uh, that is where we did... Did he just say something about a poodle? What? A poodle? No, you must have been dreaming. Weird. Who are you talking to, Stinkweed? Oh, I, I was talking to my wife. Perhaps you'd like to purchase some crackers for the lady, then. Nothing's more romantic. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, I'll take a box of those. What? A man of taste. Don't you think that perhaps it's time to wake up? 
What do you mean? Step aside, traffic boy. Me and Picklehead here are missing out on some fine poodle racing. <laughs> go, doggies, go. Are you really going to take orders from a talking squirrel? Mm, I don't know. Uh, who exactly are you calling a squirrel, Radio Man? Well, technically you are a, a squirrel. It's true, Mr. Gorway. He does have a point. Quiet! Nincompoops! All of you! This is way too weird. I'm out of here. You coming with me? Well, I'd love to, but how do we get out of here? Well, if it were up to me, I'd take the gardener to the lakeshore because there's trouble on the lakeshore now by the exhibition. Oh. Uh, as things get underway, okay. there was some debris. We have to get up. Uh, just I'm not time. pressing no, the snooze again. Cleared, but, uh, oh. along, okay, uh, the fine. Expressway, course, Turn off the radio. I'm awake. Snooze, produced by Jeff Siskin, originally heard on Outfront, a daily 15 minutes of storytelling, experimental audio, and new ways of making radio produced by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. So you had better do what you were told